Welcome back, Rocky Road family. Today we have a guest who I can already tell is going to be a wonderful addition to the Rocky Road family. Um, we have our new friend, Damian White. He is a poet, he is an author, and he has an awesome story, and we can't wait to talk to him. So Damian, I want to give you the floor for just a second and introduce yourself and give me just a really quick, who are you? Sure. Well, first, thank you for having me. I'm super excited to be here. I've been looking forward to this the entire day. Um, and it's, it's, the, it's at the end of the day, so it's a great, a great little nightcap for me um, for today. Um, so I'm a writer from Columbus, Ohio. I was born and raised here. I went to college in North Carolina at Davidson College. Most people know that for Stephen Curry, um, mm-hmm. the basketball player. So that's yep. usually the my little entree into like where my school was. It's a tiny <laughs> in a tiny little city outside of Charlotte. Um, so I wrote a poetry book, and the reason why I'm here is to share kind of the story and journey that I took to get to the book coming out. Um, I actually ended up being homeless twice over the last seven years. Um, and in 2015, the most serious time I was homeless in San Francisco for three months. And so that kind of experience, having gone from being at the, one of the most prestigious universities um, for grad school after college and then dropping, you know, dropping out of grad school and working and working, kind of not working out and then falling to like the lowest of my low. Um, that was the catalyst for me to write the book. And so for me now it's, important to share with people the thoughts, the feelings, the situations, the experiences that kind of came along with me being homeless and kind of just refiguring out my identity as a person who's like trying to maintain your own self-respect and worth and dignity after kind of falling from the falling from grace in a sense. Um, so that's why I'm here to talk to you. Excellent. That's awesome. I'm excited. Let's hear it. Um, first question I guess I would have would be, um, what was your upbringing like? What was your childhood like? What brought you to that place? Um, you know, being a PhD student is no joke. So kind of like bring us up to, you know, in a minute or two of what got you to that place. Yeah. So I would say that the best way to describe my upbringing was like my back felt against the wall in a sense where I felt like I was trying to escape for most of my childhood. So I grew up in a single parent household. My parents were divorced when I was seven. And that was very challenging for me for lots of reasons for lots of years. And um, I think that I grew up in a house with my mom, my aunt, my grandma, and my brother, and not a huge house, obviously. And we were, I would say, like middle, lower middle class. Um, so I never was going hungry or anything like that. Um, but I felt that there was a bit of a pressure on my back to pull myself and everyone else out of out of that situation. So I had to be the best student. And I I had to think that like getting the good grades and graduating from the good school was going to get me the good job that was going to make me Superman and save everyone. And so mm-hmm. um, I was, I was a, a regular kid in the sense where I like, I played in the band, I played in the jazz band, I played saxophone um, and I played flute. Nice. I learned, I learned how to play music on violin. So from almost all of my schooling, I played music. Um, I also just like played sports. I wrestled, I played rugby. Um, but there was always the side that I knew that I had to let acad- the academics like shine. And I just mm-hmm. felt like that pressure on myself, whether it was just from kind of like me adopting that idea just mm-hmm. from everything going on or people saying like, hey, you should be a doctor and, you know, you got to do this and you got to do that and you got to buy your mom a house and you got to do this. And, you know, like I felt I felt a, a sense of a sense of pressure. Um, Did so- you put that on yourself or do you feel like someone 
expected that from you or is that just you saying, okay, I, I hear this a lot from kids who were the only boy or the oldest son saying, okay, now I'm the man of the house now and it's my job to figure it out. Yeah. Well, I, I think I felt like the man of the house since I was seven. And so mm-hmm. it just felt like at the time when I was 18, mm-hmm. after 11 years of feeling that way, now you feel like you can actually go. The only way to do something in my mind was like to go to school and get a degree so I could get the job that pays me a hundred thousand dollars or whatever they mm-hmm. say you're supposed to make, you know? And, um, I, I definitely put the pressure on myself. I don't, I, I won't say like I had like a super strict mom where she was like, on my back about my grades. I was already kind of a self-motivated student. So mm-hmm. I wanted to bring home the good grades. You know, I had like one of those families where like I got 20 bucks for an A and like 10 bucks for a B. And so <laughs> to me, it was like a fun little game I played in school, um, but definitely more me than everyone else. If you're more like me too, you probably were harder on yourself than other people were on you. Oh yeah. Like I was definitely yeah. my biggest critic. And it's just like, yeah. I think for most of school, like it's like the, the parents... There, there are these memes that were going around a couple of years ago where the parent was like, um, the kid came home like a 3.9 and the dad was like, where's the other 0.1? You know, <laughs> I was, that was me though. Like I was that for uh-huh. myself. And I feel wow. like I was kind of policing myself in that way where I, I was making standards and expectations for myself that were hurting me emotionally and spiritually mm-hmm. and physically because I was, I was putting the finish line so far every time I wanted to plant mm-hmm. the flag even further. And I never really stopped to like realize what that was doing to me or if it was really what I wanted. I think it just felt like mm-hmm. the right thing to do in order to get the thing I thought I expected for myself. Mm-hmm. I can totally relate to that. My goodness. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's that makes a lot of sense. So then you were you went to what did you go to undergrad for? I went to undergrad for sociology. Um and okay. then I I presumed I was gonna be a professor. Uh so sure. that that field it um it doesn't necessarily get you into all the great greatest jobs you know i feel like if you want to be a sociologist it's great that means you're going to be you know go to the university be a professor and like write papers and you know mm-hmm. write books or you can go work in the nonprofit sector in certain places like some ngos or nonprofits which is what i did i went to work for a nonprofit right after um i left grad school but there weren't it was it's not like economics where it's like I could go and do a bunch of other consulting jobs or start my own little finance firm or anything like that. So mm-hmm. I had to really figure out like what do I do now? Because there's the not path, a really clear path. There's no there was no longer a clear path. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. So then you went to undergrad and then you you said you were in grad school when you became homeless. Was that the first or second time? That was the first time. Okay. So that was the first after I left grad school. Um, I had like thousand bucks or something and I decided to drive across country um, to go stay with a friend who was my girlfriend at the time. And mm-hmm. um, that money runs out, obviously. And then mm-hmm. I had no, I didn't know what my ambitions were and I didn't know what I was going to do. And so like our relationship and friendship strained and then that ended, you know? And so mm-hmm. like now I'm kind of like left out in the street trying to figure it out. And I had a stubbornness in a sense, I guess I would use that, that word now that I just didn't want to ask for help or go back home. Mm-hmm. I just refused yeah. to go home. I think that because I had built my identity for so long on getting away from home and maintaining a certain independence that mm-hmm. once I was out there, I didn't feel like a, a, any proper route could end back at home. And, and I'm so, sure for yourself, based on what you're just really describing, you having this sense of these high achievements that you need to reach, I'm sure there had to have been a sense of failure 
thinking that you didn't, you couldn't go home. If you went home, you failed and you didn't succeed at getting that job in that house that you had set out to get for so many years. Yeah. And then you have to also, I had to realize I had been fake for a long time. You know, Mm -hmm. like I, I wanted to do all the things that were going to look good to other people. And so my identity was built on that to them. And then when Mm -hmm. I was no longer any of that, I, the guilt and the kind of disappointment and embarrassment that would, that made me not want to be near those people anymore. It made me want to isolate myself and make sure I wasn't around them because I didn't want them to see me that way then, Mm -hmm. you know? So from then till now, a lot has changed, but back then I was, I, I wanted to be just a hermit. I wanted to be by myself. I wanted to be alone. Did you feel like you had any, you talked about identity. Um, Did you feel like you had anything that you felt was really true to you at that point? Or was your entire identity being the person that you thought other people expected you to be? Uh, It was still that, I think. And I think it was, I I like music and I was making music um, kind of as a hobby Mm -hmm. at that time. And I wasn't sure that I could like do it full time because again, like I rap. And so you're, you're talking about like somebody who was going to stand in front of students and like deliver lectures. And then that person is now telling people that they left grad school and they're going to start rapping. Right. And so for Mm. me at the time, it felt like an impossible hill to climb if it was something Mm. I was going to do, actually try to do like telling people that just wasn't an option. Um, So it was just very challenging because I wanted to live, I, I wanted to live kind of freely, but I also needed to be alone. I needed to be I needed to shelter myself from kind of the judgment and the perception that everyone, I thought everyone was going to have of me because of my mm-hmm. change in status. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. It absolutely does make sense. And I think it's, I'm, I'm really glad that you are, I'm going to jump to the question instead of giving my thoughts, but I, my, I would love for you to speak into the choice of a lot of people think that homeless isn't a choice. Homeless is because people don't love them or don't care for them. And I know people in my personal life who've made the choice and who have family and friends that do love them very much. And so I know that's a stigma and I know that's an incorrect um, assumption that people have that to be homeless, you're not loved and you're not supported in your life. So I'd love for you to speak into that a little bit. Yeah. My mom would probably love to hear this. Um, mm. <laughs> like my, my, you know, everyone wanted me to come home. My mom mm-hmm. offered to give me plane tickets and drive all the way to Florida with the first time I was homeless and California, the second time I was homeless. And it was, there was just like, I threw my phone in the ocean. You know, I literally wanted to disconnect. And mm-hmm. um, the crazy part is that it's hard to tell people that you choose that. Mm-hmm. It's hard mm-hmm. to tell people. It's hard for people to conceptualize because I don't think most people are in tune necessarily with the things that are killing them slowly. You know, mm-hmm. so for me, a lot of that pressure, that pressure was caving in on my chest. Every day I felt it caving in. And I think that at the moments when I could have chosen to go home and I said no, there was still more work to be done internally for me to like feel like I could come back home the person that I set out to be. You know, like it was mm-hmm. like I was homeless in California for three months. And had I come back in month two, then there would have still been some stuff I hadn't worked out. And then mm-hmm. I don't know what happened. I don't know what happens then. Mm-hmm. You know, I had to be literally scared to near death. You know, that's when I came home. And mm-hmm. had that not happened, then I don't know. Maybe I would have still felt like I could live life a little more dangerously. Maybe mm-hmm. I would have still felt like I had more questions I could 
you know, me, I, I kind of felt like an explorer. I felt like Lewis and Clark out there in a sense where like, I'm figuring me out, I'm figuring the world out. And it doesn't, mm-hmm. at the time, it doesn't feel how it looks. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it looks terrible, but it didn't feel that way. I didn't have any bills. I didn't have any mm-hmm. phone. I didn't have any social media. I didn't have any mm-hmm. friends to keep up with. So like, I was just mm-hmm. doing me literally. And mm-hmm. it was amazing. That part of it, you know, mm-hmm. and you have to, I had to be able to balance that and understand that because now when people ask me about it, I don't have to sit and talk about it as some miserable, awful experience that like I regret that like I could have avoided. I couldn't have, you mm-hmm. know, I don't, and I, and I wouldn't have, I wouldn't go back and not do, I wouldn't go back and change it. Mm-hmm. And that's an interesting it's a perspective shift. Whereas I, I've had a lot of clients, a lot of interactions. I used to run a group home, um, in uh, Center City, Allentown, where it was basically the first step out of incarceration, trying to get um, people with mental health and comorbid issues back into their homes, into their lives, and a lot of them quite literally would try to escape from the group home where we had heat and running water and therapy and food and anything they could possibly need because they missed their friends in the homeless community that were right outside the doors that we were at. And it was an interesting thing where for me, I couldn't quite wrap my head around it. So you have every material need that you could need. You have access to your family, you have access to healthcare. And you're like, yeah, but I, I miss, I really miss that feeling. And I really miss being out. Is that what, that's what they would say is I miss being out with my family, with my friends. Yeah. For, for me, it was very strange because once you're there long enough, it starts to feel like your community starts to Mm -hmm. feel like your friends. You start to feel like people you see every day. It's the same as like your new coworker. You just get a new job and these are your new coworkers, random people you have, you have, you've never met right now. But as soon as as soon as you've been working there for three months, now it's like you guys are getting lunch together. You know that their dog's mm-hmm. name is Toby, and that their kids do gymnastics, and you know all this stuff. And it's, mm-hmm. it's the same out there. You have nothing but time to be with each other and hang out or do whatever you guys are doing. And so it feels weird when you go away because you feel like you lost a friend, but it's just not the same. Mm-hmm. And it's I think it's interesting too of what you're saying is when you're in it, you don't feel like what the outside world, outside world in a way, um, sees it as, you know, a lot of us are told and there's homeless shelters, people that are cold. And, you know, you think of like what the typical homeless situation is where somebody's sleeping on a subway vent on the sidewalk in this inner city. Um, but there's all the different types of homelessness where it's like, you have a car, so you have something, but do you have the money to run the car or do you, like, you know, again, like if you're meeting with people, what are they doing and how are they living their lives? And it's interesting you bring up that sense of freedom because some people in homeless situations may feel that freedom. And it's- I felt the same thing that people feel when they go to the beach and hang out for vacation because mm-hmm. the guy sleeping on the vents, looking up at the stars and like the ocean is like, I was in San Francisco, so I'm, I can, I'm sleeping in places that are some of the most beautiful places in the world, right? you know, in America. And like, that's, it's, it's, it just wasn't, it wasn't, ter- it wasn't bad in the sense that I think everyone would assume it is because I'm out there looking at the stars and I'm listening to the water and I'm talking to people and having conversation and I'm learning stuff. And like, that is the same reason why people want to unplug and go to Cancun. Mm-hmm. They want to go listen to the water and hear the stars. So I think that for people who are trying to understand that they have to, they have to shed some layers of that onion 
so that they mm-hmm. can really grapple with like what it is what it feels like to be there not what it's not what it looks like or what it's stereotyped to be like but what can you imagine what it feels like and most sure. people can't most people can't mm-hmm. this is gonna sound like a strange question but do you sometimes miss that unencumbered existence for sure or parts of it I, for sure and i and i i think that i it's the reason why i still don't have that many friends i mm. still don't i still don't like go see my mom often as often as maybe I should. I see her way more now, but like there's still parts of me that like that freedom, it's like there, I don't even know how to tell this story, but it's kind of funny. Like my mom, I remember going on the phone with her and talking about like, it was like right around rent time. And I was like giggling once because I'm like, I don't even, I don't even know what that means. I don't, even, mm-hmm. I don't have rent, you know? And like to her, that seemed like lack of responsibility. To mm-hmm. me, it sounded like a shackle that had been unchained. Mm-hmm. And so, like, our perspectives were just different at the time. And, like, as a rent-paying member of society now, I can't tell you this is better all the time. Mm-hmm. You know? I wouldn't – it doesn't mean that I'd wish to be back there. But I can say that I, I learned lessons from that experience that I couldn't have learned if I never escaped the bubble of everything always being okay mm. and everything always being comfortable. Hmm. Yeah, so it stretched you out of your comfort zone into a different lifestyle, literally, <laughs> that, literally. You had to, that you had to figure out and maneuver your way through. So, yeah. so being in, you know, obviously we're not here to glorify homelessness. It's not something that we want people to be in to go through. So what took you from that point to actually going home? Like you said, there was a dangerous situation, something that happened um, the second time you were homeless. Like what made you... I mean, to me, also being another member of society that pays bills, I mean, like thinking I would could live somewhere without bills does sound great. So like what changed that perspective of the homelessness and the homelessness community to know I need to do this and and to become a, quote, member of society in a way, you know? Yeah, it ties directly into something I was mentioning earlier. I think that like it, my safety um, was compromised once I got too familiar Mm. So like I got so comfortable that those streets that like I knew not to walk down those, you know, two years of living in San Francisco, I started ignoring that. And I started mm-hmm. meeting people there and I started hanging out there. And those those people that like I was kind of scared of in the beginning, like now I want to know what they do. Now I want to know who they mm. are. Mm. And so like there was just a day where I was grabbed by the neck and put up against a fence and a guy had some sharp it was night it was it was an, it was in the evening he had some mm-hmm. sharp object and i don't know i i'm a, i'm gonna assume it was a knife and he was just screaming i better not have sold my soul for nothing i better not have sold my soul for nothing and i was standing there and i heard the clink of the metal on the pavement and i realized that he had dropped whatever the sharp object was and when he got off me i just like backpedaled on the ground um and he could have easily just picked up whatever that sharp object was and come back and got me. But I was just a random person walking down the sidewalk. I was just walking by the beach at night. And so that the next morning when I started to think about it, I realized that like I no longer was in control of my own physical safety. And I had to make a choice because it was at that point where I realized that if I didn't do something, I was going to die in San Francisco. Hmm. 
It's interesting, just the words that you've used. Being a poet, I hope you appreciate this, but you described your childhood as having your back against the wall and the moment that changed your life, you felt like your back was against the wall, literally. It's very poetic that you drew that together. (laughs) From a poet, I appreciate that. (laughs) Words aren't always my thing, but I have my shining moments. But it's just, it's, I kind of, my my throat just closed up a little bit thinking about that experience for you. Um, And that's the first time I've told that story. Um, Mm. I think, I think that there are other stories I've told, you know, I was threatened several times. I was in lots of bad situations and bad car Mm -hmm. rides and in tents and in places Mm -hmm. and in in, in buildings with people doing things that you, you don't even want to imagine. Mm -hmm. And so I think that even those things didn't make me go home, but it was Mm -hmm. the moment when I realized that it was just the flat, like the flash of my life was really Sure. It literally, it literally mm-hmm. flashed before my eyes. And so that was really transformative. Um, and it took about, it was still hard to get home. I didn't have an ID. I didn't have a wallet. I didn't have anything. Mm-hmm. So I had to work with the San Francisco like public offices to see if they had any programs for me to go home. And they did. They had a Greyhound bus program where if you had someone in your city that would receive you, then they would call them. And if they said yes, they would pay for your Greyhound ticket. So That's I wrote the amazing. Greyhound from San Francisco wow. to Columbus, Ohio over the course of like too many days. I was going to say, how long is that ride? It was supposed to be five days, but the bus broke down somewhere in Texas Mm -hmm. and we had to stay there for like an entire day. So I got home like seven days later and Mm -hmm. they only give you like 30 bucks. So they give you like $30 for the ride to take with you. So you can buy, you know, stuff at the gas station or whatever, whenever the bus stops, but like 30 bucks for seven days. Yeah, that doesn't go mm. far at all. It's gone in two. Yeah. Wow. So there are, and again, kind of reiterating the, of what you said earlier is you don't really realize what you're in at the time. So I'm sure now having the life that you're living now is that's very looks very different than being homeless. You you can look back at those moments and say, yeah, that freedom was really great, but those moments in the tent or the moment in the the dangerous car ride or the moment that your life literally flashed before your eyes in that, in that moment, that would be the point that you would say homelessness is not a preferred lifestyle. I don't think it, I don't think there was any point where I'd say it was preferred. Okay. I think what I would say is that, um, we have to be able to reframe our perspectives to understand that, people can experience situations differently. Mm -hmm. So while there are sure plenty of homeless people that are drug addicts and this and that and this and that, right? Ex felons and this and that Mm -hmm. there's, I met doctors, lawyers, I met teachers, former teachers, former lawyers, former doctors Mm -hmm. who are also, who are intermingled throughout that community of people. And I think that what it showed me was that like there's a humility that is lost in like corporate America that you have mm-hmm. to feel there. You have mm-hmm. to feel because these are I always think this like if someone was to assume something about me, they could have never assumed my past. They could have been, they would have never assumed I dropped out of University of Michigan number 1 PhD program in the country and mm-hmm. I did I I went to Davidson College and graduated and I did they would never assume those things. And so like, for me, I had to approach everyone like that too. Like I shouldn't assume that I know anything about you just because of where you are. And Mm -hmm. I've carried that into like my, you know, once I, I guess went, got back into 
the transition into regular life, like I care, I've carried that with me. And like people say, like, don't judge a book by, by its cover, but it's way different. Mm-hmm. It's not that. It's really seeing people for who they are and like right. accepting that and having empathy and like understanding yeah. you don't know what's going on inside. I looked perfectly fine to everybody. I looked, I was always partying. I was always having fun. I always like looked like I was doing good, but nobody knew that there was just a dumpster fire on the inside. Mm-hmm. Right. I think you brought up a really important point too, is that th- there's more assumptions with homelessness is my, you know, my particular experience happened to be with folks who were incarcerated and they had drug issues and that's why they were incarcerated. Um, but that's not always the case. You can be clean and sober and you can have a history of a very successful life. There's a lot of really incorrect assumptions about what leads people down the path that they've been walking down. And so thank you for saying that because I I think even some of our listeners, I can hear the explosions like, wow, former lawyers, lawyers have it all. No. In corporate America, they look like they might have it all because they have the suits and they have the money and they have the, you know, X, Y, and Z material items at some point. Yeah, but they're probably a divorce or a couple paychecks or no clients, months of no clients away from that too. Mm -hmm. Most people are. And it's just, there's a safety that we feel that we should feel. We should feel the comfort, comfort to be able to live each day and like not be worried about being on the streets. Like that's no, no one should be waking up every day worried about that. Mm -hmm. But I do think that at the same time, we have to acknowledge that like life could turn on a dime. And that was my greatest Mm -hmm. fear before was that the, like my life could just be pulled, the rug could be pulled from underneath my feet and it happened. But I, mm-hmm. I, I brought that I, – I continued to, like, think that was possible. And then it happened in real life. Mm-hmm. And we're, I'm not happy that you were in a life-changing or a life-altering and life-threatening moment. But I think that those terrible pit moments are what lead to the peaks. And I feel like you're you're heading towards one. You have a book, which we didn't actually tell, tell our listeners the title of. And I want to make sure that we support that. So can you talk about your, your journey towards – poetry, which is a beautiful way to tell your story. Absolutely. Um, so the book is called I Made a Place for You. It's an illustrated poetry collection. I worked with uh, an Italian artist named Francesco um, from Livorno. Great Italy. name. <laughs> <laughs> and he's a, he's a great friend of mine. He's a great friend of mine now. Um, but the, the point of this book was kind of to uncover some of the questions I had about life, spirituality, growing up, becoming a man becoming a better person, appreciating the earth, appreciating family or understanding some of those things. It was a place for me to, the title I made a place for you came from me needing a space to actually talk about those things. Because like when you're thinking about like, just imagine the thoughts you have the night after getting almost being stabbed. Mm. Right. So like one of those, I wrote a poem called purgatory and like that poem was inspired by that night. Because I had the thought, like, if that was a real place, like, what would, and I, and I would have gone there last night. Like, how would I have felt there? And like, to me, that's not a brunched conversation to have with my friends. Mm-hmm. So right. I had to find a way to talk about that and get that out and like, under, and like get what was inside of me outside. And so poetry has always been the way for me to transform my feelings, thoughts, emotions into something productive. And I've been doing mm-hmm. that since I was young. This is just my first book. I've been writing poetry and doing slam poetry and just supporting poetry forever. Um, I just finally found the gumption, I guess, to make this a real 
project, make it a real book. Mm-hmm. And so my goal for people is to have more questions and answers with these poems. They're supposed to be a, mm-hmm. a tool for digestion. You know, they're supposed to, they're not supposed to answer kind of like any of life's big questions, but expose you to some of the questions that maybe we're not asking, or maybe you haven't thought of because you've never been back against the wall and had to wonder what it's like to worry if you're going to die or not be able to see your dad again or see your, or, or if you, you know, for me, like my relationship with my dad isn't the best. So like, I knew that I would never get to mend it if ever, if that was ever even a thought in my mind. Right. So like, how do you reconcile that? And like, this was the book for me to kind of start writing my feelings and getting mm-hmm. that stuff out. So. Mm-hmm. And that's such a great outlet too, because I think specifically, and you can speak more into this too, obviously, being a male in our society, it's not something that men really want to admit or talk about is emotions or things that they're going through or questions or maybe even a struggle, you know, with our society and American culture of just like men are strong and they can't cry and they can't be tough. You know, they have to be tough all the time. So this is just a really nice outlet for you to be able to express those emotions while also encouraging other people that maybe this isn't an answer. This is just more questions for you to think about. And that's a that's a great tool and a way to process through feelings and emotions and experiences too. Yeah, I think that for any men that don't think that that's important, um, my motto is to have the full range of emotions. You know, like the, I allow myself to have the full range of emotions, so I don't have to be the tough guy all the time. I was crying two nights ago, two mornings ago, the day after Christmas. My grandmother passed in May. This was my mm-hmm. first Christmas without her. And mm-hmm. I, I held it together all of Christmas. You know, I told my mom, I was yeah. like, I want to cry every 45 seconds on Christmas. But the day after mm-hmm. Christmas, I cried for an hour and like, I, and then I, and I felt fine about it because mm-hmm. I, I also know that I'm the only one that has the, has a clue what it looks like when I get to rock bottom, Sure, you know, mm-hmm. and I get to rock and I got to rock bottom by holding my emotions in, by mm-hmm. thinking I'm stronger than all of that, by not having, mm-hmm. by not thinking I needed to talk to people and share what was going on. So for me, it's super important now to like have all the feelings. I want to have them all. So mm-hmm. I don't live my life according to what it's supposed to look like by other people anymore. So if I'm not a tough guy to you, that's fine, you know, mm-hmm. but there's plenty of people who are going to appreciate having someone who wears their feelings in their sleeves, you know, and like it's thoughtful and I, I feel transparent, you know. Mm. I feel trained and I, and I, mm-hmm. I, I like to feel that way. I want to, I want, I want to mm-hmm. feel see-through. I want you to be able to see through me and I want <laughs> you to feel like you're getting the person that like is in front of you. And right. I, and I, I feel like that's manly, you know, that's, mm-hmm. that's, yeah. for, and that's, that's, it's, it's human. But I mean, for men who have never heard anything like this before, like that's to me, a, another definition of masculinity that doesn't sure. exist. Yeah. And I, and, and we, and we need more people who like feel. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I, I, in my house, I have this motto. I don't have it written down. I could probably put it on the wall or something. But in my house, I have this motto where all emotions are accepted, but they don't determine the the result. So we can allow all emotions to be felt. And I'm okay with any emotion to be felt in my home. And I'm completely open to it, but it doesn't make the decision for what the result is. So, you know, you don't want to make a decision out of anger. You don't want to make a decision out of sadness, honestly. And you don't want to make a decision out of happiness, but all emotions are allowed here and we can feel all of them and express all of them. But then we come down to like the root of the truth and what that the root of actual truth is what will make the decision in my house. And so that's just like something that, you know, kind of like reminds me what you're saying about is just like, it's okay to feel emotions and it's okay to cry and 
there's, you know, even in those moments for you and for me, you know, I was crying the other day too. Like it's a regular thing. here, <laughs> And so it's just accepted. Like it's just, it is what it is. And, you know, maybe no, literally nobody needs to watch, but maybe it just needs to happen. And that's fine. You know? So I really love that. And I, I really appreciate that, that, that you took those emotions and put that into your poetry and, and we're able to express that, but to also use that as a springboard for other people to begin to feel emotions and maybe thoughts that they have never even thought about. There's not many people that you'll meet that have had a near-death experience. Not a mm-hmm. lot. You know, some people, maybe a car accident or something, very typical. Sure. And terrifying? Absolutely. I am not downplaying that whatsoever. But to literally have a knife up against you or you know, your life flash before your eyes in a moment that just by happenstance, that knife fell out of that person's hand, you know, that could have been a very different outcome for you. And not many people really have that ability to share that. So that's, you know, really amazing that you can use that experience in your poetry to, to make others think. So thank you for doing yeah. that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm, I'm grateful that I have the outlet to do it. You know, I'm grateful that I have thought about what, what it would feel like if I didn't know what to do with those feelings, you know, and hmm. I don't know, you know, I have no idea. I think it would be very challenging. You know, I've, I've been, you know, I've been on antidepressants before and I've, I went hmm. to therapy and I did, I did all the stuff before, you know, and still felt like I wasn't whole yet, hmm. you know? So it wasn't until I got the words right that I felt like I was complete again. So for me, I don't, I'm, I'm really grateful and thankful that I do have this, this way to express myself and kind of clear my conscience and have catharsis in like a productive, mm-hmm. positive sense that like I can share with people in a, good, a great medium, you know, people like books and they respect yeah. books. So it's, it's easy. It's an easy to like, to talk about my story now because I have this physical thing that like we all understand. It's mm-hmm. not the same as me kind of just like showing up, be like, Hey, let me tell you guys a crazy story. <laughs> and then everyone looks at you and like they go home and get in the car and they're like, can you believe Damien like was out there like eating out of the trash cans? Mm-hmm. You know, it's not the same as reading how I write, how I wrote it, you know, mm-hmm. or how I'm writing it. So the way you say, go ahead. go ahead. Would you say the book is for, for you and your processing or is it really for the reader to help them process? I would say that everything that I create is for me and I invite everyone else to share with me. <laughs> So I, 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 I write from a place that's, so like the book is the book that I've always wanted to see in the world. I'll start mm. with that. So if that's the case, then I have to only assume that there's other people that probably wanted to see something similar, you know, maybe, sure, absolutely. maybe they didn't going to look like, but for me, I, I write, I write for me, honestly. And I, mm. I think that that's the best policy for me because then I'm not trying to like craft something that I think is going to be catchy it's like writing a hit song you know you're writing the song because you want to be catchy and single and the people will sing along but like is it the are those the words that you really feel Mm -hmm. like it's okay with me if everyone doesn't like i know some of the language is difficult in in the book but like i wrote it in a way that like it's the language i speak to myself you know Mm -hmm. it's the language that i understand it's the language that the stories came out so I, uh, I i love when people tell me that certain poems resonate with them um but it's the moment of gratification came to me when the book arrived in my hand hmm. 
And did you write the poems along the way or did you find a t- an outlet in a time that you were able to sit and actually just really write the book or were they poems that were written at various points? You said the, the one pur- purgatory poem was based off of that night. Yeah, but it was after. Shared. All of it was after. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I wrote it all after. Um, I, I didn't write for a long time when I came home. It was probably a year and a half until I started writing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just felt, I felt really compelled. I felt really compelled mm-hmm. and I wanted to write all original things and I had lost everything. I didn't have any more laptops. I didn't have my old notebooks. I didn't have any old right. phones. I didn't yeah. have anything. So I was starting from scratch. Um, and yeah, so all, all new poems that came after the experiences and I had spent a long time thinking about how I wanted to tell this stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Most, the hardest part for me was figuring out how to tell the story, right? It's like when you're going to college at least when I was going to college, my guidance counselor was like, write the write your essay about coming from a single parent household and tell them the sad story and then then they'll and then tell them this is why you need a scholarship and you you're, you're going to, you know, write the sad story basically was what they was what they wanted the guidance counselors wanted us to do. And so I didn't want to do that version of a book. Yeah. So listening to you speak about you have such a passionate drive to your voice. There's such momentum when you're speaking about this. You can really tell how excited you are to share your story and share your struggles and share the really shitty gritty stuff. Um, are you planning on doing any sort of audiobook or slam readings or anything like that so that people can really hear your words and your voice? So my goal is to, um, so the illustrator has the original paintings for these. So the poems he drew sketches for each illustration and then he watercolor painted them and then he like digitized that and like did all the touches and whatever magic illustrators do i'm not i'm not not super not super way beyond me yeah (laughs) yeah way beyond me too um but the goal he still has the originals so the goal is to frame them and take them to art galleries and do readings and signings and tour art galleries would be my big goal so i could um I felt really, I feel like it's really important for people to read the poems next to the art in this particular book because um, the art colors the words. And I I know it's kind of poetic, but I I mean it literally in the sense where like my, um, my story was colorful. It was scary and it was bright and it was trippy and it was weird. Mm -hmm. And so I think that like, you can't get that necessarily from just the words so the mm-hmm. visual element draws that draws those words into that mm-hmm. kind of like universe where you can start to see the visual representation. Um, and mm-hmm. so reading reading these poems has been a struggle because they're short and I wrote them to be seen with the pictures, with the illustrations. Mm-hmm. Um, but I have been writing. I have I have a lot more poems. And um, mm-hmm. I, I've been writing some that are just longer, more performance pieces. So I do think that there will be a lot more of that to come for mm-hmm. sure. Has there ever been on that mailing list, by the way? So let me know when you're going to be <laughs> in the Lancaster or Allentown <laughs> area. I'm really um, trying to pull it off. So hopefully. Yes. That's amazing. That's that's really cool. And I know for me, just in this conversation, I have never actually personally talked to somebody that I can actually remember that has experienced homelessness. And I don't think I've ever met somebody who actually is a poet. Actually, you know, I've, I've met lots of musicians and people can call musicians poets and stuff too. So 
I don't know. I'm just learning a whole lot while you're here tonight, which is great. Um, but the my, one of my questions that I also have is, would you ever turn your poetry into rap music? I mean, you said you liked music a lot. Is that something you would want to do? I do. I do rap, but I don't rap. Mm-hmm. I don't. My so like it's funny. I'm glad you asked. Um, the music is completely different space for me. You know, the thing about okay. music that I love. Mm-hmm. The thing about music that I love is that the words, like with poetry, it has to look a certain way on the page, and each word has to like mean exactly what you want to say but with music there's a sound you know there's a there's kind of this like freedom um and Mm -hmm. so the way I write my music it's just it's much more free in the sense of like I kind of feel like I don't feel as uh tethered to the page and so Mm -hmm. I uh I use that for different things you know I talk about different things I I rap about different things than I write about and for me both are like very therapeutic ways for me to exist Mm -hmm. um so I haven't, I didn't, like, I like, I love rec, I love rap music. Like, I, I've always loved rap music. And, like, mm-hmm. that's from everything from, like, the clean stuff to, like, the worst of the worst, you know? <laughs> and, like, it's just always been that way. And so, like, poetry is very buttoned up and very, like, right, armchair. Yeah. And, you know, you go to conferences and you present and you sign books and you do, like, things like that. But, like, there's the other side of me that's, like, I like to go to, like, parties and I like to go to art galleries and I like to go see cool stuff and I like to go to concerts and I like to do and like I like to you know I'm wearing a Basquiat hoodie like an art hoodie mm-hmm. and like I like mm-hmm. I, I like that kind of stuff too and so I have to it's my whole life kind of now is just, is me like making sure that I'm giving myself the creative food I need yeah to, I really respect that boundary of saying this is for my this is for my input this is for my output not yeah. that you're necessarily intentionally doing that. But I think that's, that's what I'm seeing is that this is what feeds me so I can feed myself in another way by providing the words and the stories for other people to then consume, which might feed something. It's, it's a beautiful cycle really. Yeah. And like music is cool because there's a faster sense of completion and gratification. Like I could write a song in a day and I could record it, go to the studio and record it and I could be done with it and listening to it, you know, Mm -hmm. but the book, like the book took, I waited for that Amazon order, you know, package for a long time. You, you had know? to order your own book on Amazon. No, they sent me an author copy. Oh. But, you know, <laughs> it, it's just like it, it, in like our society, we're so used to like you post something you get likes. You know, it's like there's yeah, an instant okay. kind of like gratification society. So for mm-hmm. me, it's like I know I'm I know I'm guilty of that too. So mm-hmm. part of that's the reason mm-hmm. why I like music because. I, even if I don't get to go record at the studio, I can just like record on my phone and listen to it mm-hmm. at my house. And that's amazing. And it's like something mm-hmm. I made and I did. And even, it feels like a little, I feel like I have a, a bunch of little secrets, you know, sure. it's like your mm-hmm. own little treasure. It's like your own little treasure chest. And like, that's why I think that when I do get to the point where I finally share something with people, like I'm so happy and comfortable and good with the thing that I made that like, I just want other people. I just want to see if other people want it. You know, I just want to yeah. see if other people can relate or will like it or is useful. Um, and I feel like being an artist or a writer is a service in a sense. It's like you're part, like you're making stuff and my job is to get it to people who like need it or want it. Mm-hmm. And listen, you're preaching to the choir here, Damien. You have two music therapists. I have moments in my in my day where I look at my clients having a ball with whatever improv that we're doing, with whatever we're doing, and I look... And I say, this is my job. And I'm just so humbled to be able to make spontaneous music with people all the time. And there's a beauty to 
the fact that this happened right now in this moment, and this moment cannot be duplicated by anyone. We can play the same notes. We can sing the same words. We can wear the same clothes. We can do whatever we want to, but it cannot be duplicated. And your brain chemistry can change in that moment. And it's a really beautiful thing. And so I appreciate your appreciation for what you said, those little secrets, those little treasures that you will always have. Absolutely. It's, super, it's a super special thing. And uh, I mean, I, I, you said I'm preaching to the choir, so I'll, I won't keep preaching, but I- <laughs> Oh, you're welcome to. here to listen. <laughs> I'm just saying we, we completely understand that it, it transcends words sometimes, the experience and the feeling and the emotion yeah. that you can get putting into and getting out of music. We, no one has really been able to accurately describe it because it's beyond words. And it's beyond words sometimes even when the music comes to you. Like it's just- Sometimes I don't know, like I, I feel like my mind is made of music or my heart's made of music or my heart's made of words. And like, and like, it's, I can see how that has been, I can see how like from a logical standpoint, how like my life could have led to that being the case. You know, like I've always listened mm. to, like, I've probably listened to more music than like regular people. Like I've heard more lyrics than like regular conversation. It seems like my time spent listening <laughs> to music is incredible. You know, it's a, it's a lot over the course of my life. And I've, and but I think that like when it comes to you and then you make it, there's just something like, it, like you said, it's hard to, it's a very ephemeral feeling that's hard to capture. Mm-hmm. It's a great word. Yeah, that sounds great. And I, I think it's really, I, I was, as you've been sharing more and more, I've been thinking about just your life experience and those um almost like you were trying to box yourself in with your expectations, your aspirations and your goals. And what I'm kind of seeing throughout the journey is you've learned how to free yourself with music and with poetry and illustrations and then having these goals. So, you know, you've been through a rocky road, which is why we have the name of our podcast (laughs) and, you know, up and down hills and peaks and pits, which we like to talk about every once in a while. So what are some things you know, you talked about the, your goals with the art gallery and reading poetry there, but what are some positive things? Like what are things that you're looking forward to with your life and, you know, the goals that you're trying to, to reach, um, without, you know, backsliding. And obviously that naturally happens to all of us in our life, but what is something tangible? Like what are some great things that have happened to you as a result of these really difficult things that you've been through? Yeah. Aside from your book. I, uh, hmm. I got to go to Paris last year um, in Prague, which was amazing. Um, mm. And I spent three days in Paris and three days in Prague. And I think that like, I've always wanted to go to Italy and I haven't been there yet. But um, <laughs> being in those two places just showed me again how much world I would have missed. Hmm. And so like now my goal is to just experience as much as possible. Go try foods I can't pronounce and go bring back <laughs> perfumes and cologne <laughs> smell like things I've never even heard of before. Like that's like, I want to do that. And yeah. like those, even the thought of that gets me like giddy. It makes me feel excited. So um, like, that's sure. one thing I, I'm excited about, you know, it's, it was a really tough year for me with my grandma passing because she was kind of my, like, she was the barometer in a sense for like me, like she was, the only, she. I guess the best way I could put it is she was the last person I was afraid to disappoint. Hmm. So now I feel free in the sense where it's like, I don't think that I can disappoint anybody else. The only, that only, the only person would have been me and I've already done that. Hmm. And I've already got over that and now that's not possible anymore. 
I can't disappoint myself again. So sure. I think that for me, it's like, it is actually trying to inch towards that freedom that we talked about earlier, mm-hmm. but like this time in my way. Right. Um, and so I'm excited about that. I'm excited about figuring that out. Like, can I make money making music? Can I, how, like, I don't know how much money I'll make for my books. I don't know. Like, but like, can I go on a book tour? Can I, I don't have sure. any idea, but I'm excited about the prospects of like, whatever the future may hold in terms of getting me closer to being able to wake up and like not have to do things I don't want to do. Sure. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That is a great goal. I also love traveling. So I completely can understand your giddiness about experiencing places and and going different, um, going to different places to try great food. (laughs) Totally get that. Um, I had one last question for you before we kind of close things up. How did you come up with the name of your book? And can you tell us about that? Yeah, so there's a there's there's a few kind of few prongs to the name. Uh, I would say that the most poignant probably is that I um I had a very strained relationship with God for a long time, um, mm-hmm. and I was on the full spectrum from like there were times where I fully dependent and believing that believing in God to like not sure if you're there, mm-hmm. um, and I I was I lived all the way on that spectrum. Um, and so when I was homeless, I, I faced a lot of moments where it's like, I don't know if I'm the puppet or the puppeteer here. Mm. And I had lived my life according to like for so long, like when you're, when you're successful or whatever people, you know, they consider successful, it seems like you're, it can, it can seem like you're the one archi- being the architect of those steps. You're mm. the one making those things happen. And like, you start to kind of get this like momentum and feeling that you can predict the future. So if I do A and B, then I'm going to get C in six months, you know? Mm. And then like when I was homeless, there was, there was none of that. And then I didn't want to be responsible for what was coming now. So like, I didn't want to play God at that time, sure. you know? And so like, it made me ask a lot of questions. Um, so this book was in part, like I made a place for those conversations that I had to have with myself about my spirituality and my religion. Um mm-hmm making a place to like talk to God again. Right. Um, mm. And then also just like, like I mentioned earlier, just a place to talk about the tough topics, the things I was curious about that I didn't feel that there were any safe spaces in my life at the time to talk about because I had burned the bridges and I had let the people down and I was scared to face them again. Um, so I, that's, that's kind of mm. where I came up with the title. I made a place for you. Mm-hmm. Where are you at right now with those conversations? With God? The, uh, great question. Um, <laughs> they're going, I would say. They're going. And I uh, I stopped believing that I was the one making the chess moves, mm-hmm. you know, a long time ago. And I think that at that point mm-hmm. when I stopped believing that I had to, like, face the mirror and say, if it's not me, the, all the roads end up back at God, mm-hmm. no matter how you cut the cake. So I mm-hmm. had to... I had to have that conversation and say like, is prayer a tool I can use now? Because for a long time, I didn't want to pray. Mm-hmm. Right. And so like, is that something that I can, and that's a simple, like you, I had to, you have to, I had to have an entire mindset shift to even ask myself if I was allowed to pray. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And so like, I think that like, if you can really grasp how, how far those two things are from each other, as mm-hmm. close as they may seem, the action of actually praying was very oh, yeah. far from the thought of it. 
sure. you know? Mm-hmm. And so that's just a small example. But um, I would say that we have a healthier relationship. We are in communication. <laughs> that's a good thing. Um, both of us are believers and, you know, we are both Christians and we're pretty open about it throughout our podcast too. So it's always, it's always yeah. interesting when people bring up their spirituality and their beliefs and when, you know, we have, it's open, our podcast is open to anybody. Um, but just for the two of us, we're Christians. And so, um, it's just, you know, it's cool to see people's adventures through finding God and rediscovering and losing and kind of falling back and just like really finding that firm foundation that you need and like rooting and knowing that God, like you said, God is at the end of all roads. He's still there and he's still always with you. So, um, mm-hmm. it's really, and it was really funny. Cool. I could, can I, I, this might be interesting for you guys. If you want to go on a little tangent, um, sure, go for I, it. We, we're I, notorious I, for that. <laughs> I remember the moment when I started. To, so I was baptized when I was 11 in a Baptist church. Okay. Um, and I remember when I was probably like 19 or 20 and I started to feel guilty because I wasn't sure if like I wanted to know if I could take it back or I wasn't yeah. sure if I was I was actually ready mm-hmm. at 11 when I gave my life to Christ. Right. And mm-hmm. I remember the feeling I had at the church when the, 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 the day I decided to go to the altar call and like, I was crying and I, I felt the, I felt the, you know, I really felt it. I still remember that I was with my stepmom's brother, who was my best friend at the time. And we were the same age and we both did it the same day. Mm-hmm. Um, but like later in life, I just kept wondering, like, was what I, would I rather have had a, an opportunity to do that later after I'd like felt more life and like, after I had, because now it's like, I, I remember thinking like, I knew that I was saved, but I didn't feel saved in some of those moments, Hmm. like later in life. And it was challenging to me when I had to go back and like re spark that conversation with God, Mm. because like, I didn't know what happened and I didn't, and I had trouble processing what happened um, for a while. So makes it makes it. I love to know what you guys think about that. Yeah. What do you guys so that's think a about huge that? question because a lot of people, not a lot of people. So the church that I am currently at, they do not do infant baptisms. It is a choice. And they, they have only, I don't know what they did before. I've been there for about five years now. They would do um, like teens and older. And they've only recently started to do some younger children because of that very point. It's saying, okay, does this six-year-old really know? that this is what they want, or is it something that they see as an expectation? It was, it's an interesting thing to think about. I grew up in a Catholic church. I was baptized as an infant. I slept through the whole thing. I didn't have a choice. I was in a pretty dress and I was asleep. So, which I think is hilarious. What baby is asleep while cold water is dripped all over her face, but that's beyond the point. But thinking about that choice and saying that no matter what the answer to that question is, Jesus loves you. And he loves you if you feel worthy to be baptized and if you don't feel worthy to be baptized. Either mm-hmm. way, he has still made a place for you, Damien, and he is mm-hmm. ready for you at any moment in your life. Mm-hmm. Right. And that yeah. was a tough realization. Mm-hmm. It is really hard. And I think it's it's always a journey spiritually for, for anybody, um, regardless of that. It's, you know, God doesn't force us to to follow him and to to be 
um, to worship him and to love him. Like he it is just an open hand and open heart to us. And in it, it's an invitation for us. And it's whether or not we want to accept that. So in moments, I know in my life that I've felt like, where are you, God? You're not even here. Like, are you even paying attention? Um, you know, I really could, you know, throw me a bone, please. Like I need your help. I need something or, or moments in my life that I felt so far from him. And I think what I've realized and, and kind of what it sounds like you're starting to kind of process through just based on what you've shared is that you've still come back to, yes, he was there. And those moments of things that you've learned, maybe you strayed a little bit, you know, the the parable or in the, the story of the prodigal son where he just walks away. But then when he comes back, everybody rejoices like, yes, he's home. And it's the same kind of concept. A lot of us as Christians, we just naturally kind of gravitate towards the world and want to make our own decisions. And that's just part of who we are. And, you know, we can go on this tangent further. Of course, I can just talk on it forever, but they, it's just, when you come back to that place of like, no, I'm here. Like I'm safe. I am loved. I'm wanted by God. Um, you start to then realize either moments where, you know, we as humans have messed up and have sent and, you know, have sinned and, and fallen short, of course, like that's biblical. Like It's going to happen. But the fact that, you know, God has called us home and called us back to him and, and, and always repeats, you know, it could, we can stray again and still come back and God will still love us and still want us there. So, you know, it sounds like that's kind of how your story really went, where it was like, you had that moment and that moment when you were 11 years old was real. That moment happened and those feelings were mm. real. And those, the, the, in the dwelling of the Holy spirit, like coming within you is like very real. And then to go into the, the life that you lived as far as, um, the homelessness and just those, those ambitions and those, those achievements that you put so heavily stressed on yourself, um, even in those moments, God was with you. I mean, if you didn't have that moment of your back literally against the wall, that that life flash before you, would you have been able to write that poem that may impact somebody? And so it's like mm. those moments that God can use that are terrifying for us, but can really just help us and kind of grab us. And then when we realize that, it's like that that poem in that book that you that you wrote and those those futuristic goals that you have of being in an art gallery and reading your poetry, the impact that that could have on someone else, um, can be huge. And it can be used in this way that at those moments where you didn't feel saved and you didn't feel safe, God was still there and was like, watch what I can do with your story, you know? And so I don't want to be preaching at you. Let me just like back off of my little tangent. But I was going to say, get this woman a microphone and a crowd. <laughs> but, but like, it's hey, I true. I invited you know? this tangent. Yeah, you did. That's true. All right. So I'm going to, I'm going to blame you for this, but it's so true because even coming on our podcast, like that's part of our, what our podcast goals and aspirations and dreams are for people mm -hmm. to come on here and yeah. use this story of like a rocky road, a rocky journey, a tough journey to impact other people to know that, you know, I'm sure that there's somebody some point in this podcast's life that will listen to your story and be like, I chose homelessness. And I was, you know, and like the impact and the the familiarity that they will be able to feel knowing that you also chose that. And that was not an easy decision. And that was a really, really difficult journey for you to go through and scary that may bring them that peace. And so you, you just really never know what's going to come of what happens to you in your life. And, you know, I think it's amazing that you're still 
out like sharing and the poetry and the music and all of the things that you're doing is like that is huge impacts that can all be used for the good of God and and for his glory. And so, you know, it's exciting to see that happen. So I'll just leave my little preach moment there. That's my TED talk for the week. Take what you want from it and, you know, <laughs> just go from there. So we can cut love that it. part out if we need to. <laughs> no, I love it. I, staying I, I, in. <laughs> yeah. And I was going to say, I was going to say too, that I, uh, I had to stop like looking at, looking for like the jesus highlight highlight reels too like for me i had to i had to go back to like why did jesus weep yep like why because for me it's like there i felt like my religious conversations a lot of times were like jesus jesus loves you and you know that he has your Mm -hmm. back and he's always going to be there where regardless but like i had forgot about the the passion part sure you know i i had forgot about the the hard road and all the all like one of my favorite uh, rap lines is he says that like Jesus didn't just hang with the like with the lawyers and the doctors like he's yeah. talking about he was like hanging out with the saint with the with more than just the saints right he was with the sinners oh, yeah, for sure and so like oh yeah. I can't remember the ex- I can't remember the exact line or or else I would have I, I would I would tell you but like the the gist is is that like you have to get to the bad stuff like you said the gritty mm-hmm. stuff earlier like getting to that and like for me I had to go back to parts of that with religion like. I want to I want to hear like gritty parts about God again and the mm. gritty parts about Jesus again Jesus story again because that was the part of it that was going to make me feel solace in that moment versus just hearing the glory and the goodness of God. I didn't want to hear that sure, at the time. Yeah. Because oh, yeah. I had experienced I, I had experienced a wrath and if I'm going to mm-hmm. be frank at the time I blamed God for part of it. Absolutely. And that was yeah. me also acknowledging that was me me and my acknowledgement that there that there was God was a God. Right. And like mm-hmm. now those same those same things that like I would have blamed God for back then, I'm thankful for now, like you said. Like mm-hmm. I I understand that like I had to go through that that time period so that I could emerge as a better person, as a right. as a person who has something more thoughtful and cons- considerate to offer to people. So mm-hmm. there are two really important parts of that that you just said is that um and I can't remember exactly the the <laughs> words either, but basically Jesus surrounded himself with the worst people yeah. intentionally, intentionally. Um, and that's something that personally it's been um, like, I don't surround myself with the worst people, but people question some of my connections. And I say, if I only connected myself to the people who already thought that they were good and holy, would I be doing any good? in the world. I need to be spreading that. If I'm surrounding myself with people who know the message, who know the word, who know the hope, I I would stagnate. And so you really have to get out there in the world and talk to non-believers and talk to people and just show them the love and yeah. the peace and the patience. Don't always have patience, but I do my best. Yeah, um, me neither. <laughs> just be able to kind of trickle in and plant those seeds of goodness around there. And you know, you you can have some really good times and really good conversations with people who are questioning. Um, and that brings me to the second point is that you're right. By blaming him and by being mad at him, I think being mad at God is the ultimate form of trust in him because you don't shout and scream and at anger at someone unless you trust that they're not going to run away or unless you're trying to make them run away and you're saying, are you still going to be there? And so mm-hmm. being angry and blaming and being so upset with God about what he has, quote, done, that is the ultimate 
form of saying, okay, I know you're there, prove it. We had a guest mm-hmm. way in episode one. He said, prove it to me. And my mm-hmm. goodness, go back and listen to his because um, he did and he has proved himself to him time and time and time again. <clears throat> I was going to tell you, I, I remember telling my mom that I had, I know that God's real because I met the devil. Mm. Mm. Well, mm. yeah. yeah, there's that about true darkness. Oh. And also, you know, I'm thinking like, how do you tie a bow on this little tangent? It's like a majority of our entire conversation has been surrounded by emotions and who has felt every single emotion known to man and has been able to show us how to display that emotion righteously. And we always mess up, but who is that person? And it was Jesus. And, you know, he was the one that has, you know, as a man, Jesus was a man, like cried and got angry and loved people and did all those things and literally met the devil himself too. You know, it's like in those dark moments, we can relate to him because he was there too in those moments on when he walked on earth here. And, you know, that's so true. It's like you meet you find I, I I fully believe you find God in the darkness and in the darkest places because you just see true evil and true hurt and real real deep pain that you can't explain in any other way and the only way you can get out of that is by the help of God. So, um, you know, nice little tangent we went on there. So that was great, <laughs> great, good little one. Doesn't always happen for sure in all of our episodes, but definitely well worth it. So, um. To just kind of close our, we're all our, sweating. Yeah, right. We're all sweating. <laughs> our hearts are like racing. We're like, oh my gosh. Right. We're all ready to be baptized again. Um, <laughs> um, to kind of wrap up like our time here and just talk about it. You know, we ask all of our guests to pick a song and my goodness, I'm sure you have probably 50 that you could pick because of your music selection and your music background. So if you could just share with us the song mm-hmm. that you choose that either summarizes point in your life or um, your life as a whole and share with us what that song is so we can add it to our Spotify playlist, um, the Rocky Road playlist that anybody can check out. So you tell us. Yeah, that's such an interesting question. For somebody that loves music to pick one song. <laughs> is Listen, full disclosure, I always pick two for my episodes, so it's fine if you do. You two. can pick two if you need to. <laughs> it's fine. All right, so I'm I'm gonna pick I'm gonna pick two, and they're they're re, they're fairly um they're different. So one of them is gonna be Stevie Wonder Vi- Stevie Wonder Visions. Okay. Oh wow. From his Inner Visions album, and the other one is gonna be my song that I just Ooh. put out last month, yeah. um, which is called "Be Up" by D White D Dot White. Um, and I'm picking that because I wrote that song while my grandmother was in hospice. Mm. Um, and it's about being up late at night, trying to figure your life out. And mm. um, it's clean. So that's that's good. I, we um, have explicit songs in the really... playlist too. So don't worry about that. <laughs> okay, cool. All right. There's Yeah. Well, both, both of those should be should pass the inspection either way. Sure. Um, but yeah, the, the Stevie Wonder song is really important to me because – I was watching an interview about him and I never really put together the concept of somebody without vision explaining to you the beauty of something visually, right? Mm-hmm. So like I was, mm. I, 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 the guy was describing how Stevie Wonder is painting this beautiful picture of this like field of grass and all this stuff and these songs. And I was like, I never really thought about it. like, he's never even seen grass right? to be able to describe it in such a majestic way 
beautiful, aesthetically relatable way. Um, I just, mm. I really fell in love with like that song um, and that album recently again. So that's why I picked both those. I love that. And I'm excited to, I was about to ask you if there's an album of yours that we can support too. So I'm excited to, it, so you're on Spotify, are you on Apple Music, are you on YouTube? Both. Um, there's a video for that song on YouTube. Yeah, on YouTube awesome. there's a video um, and I can send it to you. Uh, but Perfect. no album yet. I've, I just recently, I've, I made music before in 2000, um, like I started in 2014 and then I really put out some stuff in 2018. But like that stuff now is like, it doesn't fit me you know it's right. it was yeah. that was that was back when i was still trying to figure out who everyone else wanted me to be so the, mm. like these songs and like that song in particular i think is the first one that really captures kind of the essence of like where i'm going um so mm-hmm. the video is cool hopefully you check it out sure yeah absolutely we, we want to support you we want to be um in your corner and watch you blossom into these uh poetry reading <laughs> art gallery attending concert rap show concert people everything that you are trying to be so how can people connect with you how can they find you absolutely so um i'm on instagram as uh damian k white so at d-a-m-i-a-n k white uh, my website is damian white com. so uh, it's should be easy to remember um and sure. you can find my <laughs> you can find my instagram and my book and I'm selling some hoodies and stuff. Um, I have a awesome. book tra- book trailer on there and book reviews and things like that. If you want to kind of like learn more about the book before making a purchase. Um, right. Otherwise, that's TikTok. Damien uh, KY on TikTok too. <laughs> Perfect. There you go. All the ways we'll have them in our show notes. Everybody can follow you there. So thank you so much, Damien, for chatting with us today. And our nice little tangent that took us over an hour. But you know, it's, it's all worth it. So that's perfect. Yeah. So. We really appreciate your time and just the time that we were able to, to chat and to hear your story. And, and you know, we're just really grateful for, for you being um, that mouthpiece for people of homelessness to be able to share what you've gone through and how that's impacted your life and and how to overcome a lot of that. So thank you. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. And hopefully that uh, I can come talk about the second book and tell a completely different story. Perfect. Yes. We are excited. excited for part two. <laughs> Beautiful. All right, Rocky Roadsters, thanks for hanging.